book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I've never been so angry in my life. How dare they come riding into Jerusalem like they belonged here with their huge caravan, setting up their tents right outside the city wall. Did they think it wasn't going to disturb the people? I'll tell you, they've got a city of their own out there. I think they've got more servants than I do. And as if that wasn't enough to upset the whole city, they come with this rumor that a new king of the Jews has been born. Well, I have news for them. The Jews already have a king. I ought to arrest them. I could do it. I could send a battalion from the Antonia Fortress this very day, arrest them all, throw them into prison before they knew what hit them, and see how much their gold and their riches and their sumptuous ways would count when they're chained in the dungeon. I wonder why they're here. Some story, apparently, about the star that appeared indicating to them that a new deity had been born. A king would be greater than Caesar Augustus himself. (laughs) As if that would be true. You would think that they would be more educated and more intelligent than to fall for that kind of religious drivel, a new king of the Jews. (laughs) Hmm... I think I need to come up with with a plan, a way to put that rumor aside and get rid of the three kings at the same time. How shall I do it? Well, actually, actually I'm already a step ahead of them. It was a stroke of genius to call together the uh, the scribes and the the, uh, chief priest of the Jewish people and summon them to the palace. (laughs) Oh, they were flattered by the attention. And so so I said to them, uh, so where, where does it say that the child, this new king, is to be born? 
Oh, they know that stuff so well, they didn't even have to look it up in their scrolls. They answered immediately, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I couldn't help but laughing in their faces. Uh, you say, Bethlehem? Ah, oh, yes, Bethlehem of Judea. Well, right then, I knew the whole thing was a fraud, a sham, a rumor of some sort without any basis of fact. I mean, what God in his right mind would have his king born in Bethlehem, that third-rate, sheep-smelling, run-down piece of worthless real estate in Bethlehem? So, I need to figure out a way to handle this situation. I mean... What could I do to put it into this rumor and, and outsmart these kings, these rabbis who've come from the east? I tell you, I think, I think I need to invite them here to the palace. Yes, that's it. I'll, I'll throw a banquet, a sumptuous banquet, and, and I'll invite these magi from the east to the palace and I'll play to their ego, I'll flatter them, I'll make them think that, that they're special guests who are honored here in Jerusalem. And after the banquet and the, uh, the entertainment, then I'll ask them, uh, so I need to make an announcement. I'll stand up, I'll stand up in front of everyone and I'll say, I have wonderful news for you. Yes, a new king has been born. Can I do that? Can I actually say that with a straight face? And then I'll say, um, and I can tell you where he has been born. The scribes and the chief priest have told me. No, no, no. I have, I have discovered from my own extensive knowledge and study of the Torah where the child is to be born and I'm happy to announce that he is born in Bethlehem. Oh, I've got to keep a straight face when I do this. That he, that he is born in Bethlehem. And so I have decided that I will send these, uh, these honored guests to Bethlehem to seek out the child. On my behalf, they will be my emissaries. And, and when they have found him, when they have found him, I will ask them to come back to me in Jerusalem and to tell me all that they have discovered so that I too may go to, to Bethlehem to worship this newborn king. Yes, this is great. I'm going to go worship him too. And, and that I would need to bring the dear child here to the palace so that so that he can be protected from, from all who might do him harm and be educated in the ways of his people and Roman culture. No, I'll leave out the Roman culture part. Educated in the ways of his people and so that I can see that the dear child gets everything that's coming to him. It will work. It's a great plan. Everyone will fall for it, and that will put it into this rumor. People don't realize how hard it is to be a king. I mean, here I am devoting all this time and effort and eventually money to stamping out this rumor, which has absolutely no basis in fact or truth at all. It doesn't, does it? I mean couldn't really be true, could it? 
No, of course not. And even if it is, we need to put an end to it. I suppose I'll have to kill his parents too. Yes, I'll bring the child to the palace and, oh, the dear child will meet with a terrible accident and I and all of Jerusalem will mourn his passing and that will be the end of that. (laughs) Still, there is that that star, that incredibly bright star. I'm going to ask you to uh, sort of picture in your mind this morning, you might even want to close your eyes, um, the nativity scene. And my parents tell me that when I was little, I could never remember the word nativity, so I used to call it the maternity scene. And when you think about it, you know, so I want you to picture the nativity scene. You maybe have it set up in, uh, in out of plywood in your front yard or it's on the front of your Christmas cards that you're sending out um, because they're all basically the same, right? You, you've got Jesus in the manger and then Mary and Joseph kind of hovering close to him, right? Looking incredibly clean and rusted after this arduous journey that they've made, this desperate search during the night to find a place to shelter them, a place for Mary to give birth, this midnight birth, and they're just standing there clean and poised and rested next to Jesus. Um, You must have shepherds, right? A couple shepherds anyway, and you don't want to forget the wise men. Usually you'll have three of them. Um, maybe some sheep there alongside the shepherd, a donkey, and maybe even a camel, right? And, and I really like the ones, the nativity scenes that have an angel hanging there or something, uh, hanging in the sense of suspended there. And, um, and he's got his wings open, sort of, you know, covering and blessing the whole thing. One of the things I noticed, though, is that there's one of the main characters in the Christmas story, you see where I'm going with this, who's never pictured in the nativity scene, even though he was crucial to the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And I'm talking about Herod. I mean, they don't even have him like in the shadows in the background, you know, lurking menacingly. He's just not included in it, right? So when our teaching team decided that we were going to do this Advent series on the, the three gifts that the wise men brought, um, that sounded really good, but we needed four because we had these four Sundays. Um, I suggested like a gift card as the fourth gift that they gave. You know, so, go so, something basic like the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and, and a Walmart gift card. Who wouldn't, <laughs> who wouldn't be happy about that? But we decided instead that maybe we talk about the sort of anti-wise man would be Herod. So, um, so I started reading and researching and thinking about this episode that Herod is involved in. I, I know Herod can be a little confusing to people because there are several guys in the New Testament named Herod. The one we're talking about, the one that's involved in Jesus' birth, was called Herod the Great. And he had some sons then who succeeded him and became rulers in various areas of of the Holy Land. And their names were also Herod. So uh, what we're talking about is this father, often called Herod the Great. He he ruled in Judea for uh, about 40 years. And, uh, And one of the interesting things about him is he died in 4 B.C., 
Uh, we have a little trouble sometimes dating when events in the Bible took place, but that's one that we're really sure about. Herod died, Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. Now, think about what that means for the birth of Jesus. If Jesus died before Herod, I mean, if Jesus was born before Herod died, when was Jesus born? He was not born in year one or year zero or whatever it is that most people think. He had to have been born before 4 B.C. So, actually, Jesus was probably born about 5 or 6 B.C. Herod uh, was part Jewish and had been appointed by Rome to rule the Jews. He was the king of the Jews, as his, as his title proclaimed. But he was a Jew by, by birth, but certainly not by faith. It doesn't seem that he has any inclination to be a man of faith at all. In fact, there are two things that Herod the Great was noted for. One of them was building projects. Not that he built them himself, but he undertook these great building projects, building palaces and fortresses for himself. And and sort of the main one that we are interested in is he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Remember the temple was had been built by Solomon a thousand years before Jesus. But when the Jews were defeated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., the temple's pretty much destroyed. And so for the next 500 years in Jerusalem, there's sort of a rundown... Um, not very usable temple in Jerusalem. So Herod undertakes this massive project to rebuild the temple that took decades to rebuild and he expanded it and it was glorious. So all during Jesus' life, the temple that he's going to is this temple that had been built by Herod the Great, often called the second temple. He was a builder. The second outstanding thing about him is he was ruthless. The guy was uh, maybe insane a little bit, certainly paranoid. He was so worried that someone was going to take over his throne. So he killed his wife, he killed some of his sons, he killed his brother-in-law, he killed anybody who got in his way or threatened his rule. Now, imagine a guy who is that way, who's going to kill anybody who threatens his throne, and suddenly there's this rumor going around that there's a new king of the Jews How do you think a guy like that is going to respond? Well, Herod responded with fear and anger and malice, a ruthless response. As I was reading this account about Herod, I realized, though, that there is another person who is key to this story who isn't included in the nativity sets, the scenes that we never really talk about at Christmas time. Not just an individual, but this group. And let let me read you again. This is what Tim read a minute ago from Matthew uh, chapter 2. It says, When Herod, King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Aha! Now we've got this other group of people, the scribes and the chief priests of the Jewish people. Um, man, these guys were religious fanatics. They were hyper-religious. I mean, if you were a scribe, you spent your life, your days, copying out by hand meticulously the Old Testament, the Torah that they had, doing it by hand, being careful that every letter was right, that nothing was changed from the original. They spent their lives doing that. They were so focused on, on the Word of God. And so how did they respond to this news that they were aware of uh, that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem? 
See, these guys were so religious, they had memorized, they had memorized in Hebrew the whole book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and probably all 150 Psalms and maybe even other parts of the Old Testament, the Torah. They knew it all. I'm convinced that when Herod called him to the palace and said, where is the Christ to be born? Well, they, they knew instantly. I mean, they should have been on jeopardy, you know, when under the Bible category. They knew it all. Immediately they said, well, in Bethlehem, of course, in Bethlehem of Judea, because it had been prophesied in the Old Testament by the, by the prophet Micah. Remember, in the Old Testament, it's just full of these prophecies about what God is going to do when He sends this, this Redeemer, this Savior, this new King, this Messiah, which is the he, same Hebrew word as, as Christ in Greek. They knew all of that. And how did they respond? Let's look and see. So it says, so um, they replied in Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then, what does it say that the scribes and the, and the chief priests did after that? Oh, it doesn't say. They didn't do anything. They totally did not care. Do you know how far Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? A, 50 miles. B, 30 miles. C, 20 miles. The answer is D, none of the above. Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem. Six miles. And here are these ultimate religious guys who know the Old Testament, who know the Word of God. They know that God is going to send His Messiah. They know it's going to be Bethlehem. And they don't care enough to take an afternoon's walk down to Bethlehem to check it out for themselves. When I realized that, it just... It it upset me, I guess. I mean, how... I mean... This was a huge change for the whole nation of Israel. This was the event that they had waited for for literally hundreds of years. Micah was a prophet 700 years before the birth of Christ. He, he prophesied at a time when, when God was showing the consequences of the adultery and the evil in the lives of Israel. But in the midst of that, Micah promises, gives these amazing promises of what God is going to do, that God is going to forgive, God is going to restore, God is going to send a Messiah, a Savior. I'm I'm going to read to you a little bit. Actually, I'm going to read to you a lot um, from Micah. And I just want you to um, listen to to how it's described, how, how you think you would respond if you knew that this was actually taking place. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple... Remember, the temple is on a mountain in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, come on, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. He will judge among the nations and settle disputes among the strong. And they, to see if this sounds familiar, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And the nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And everyone, this is their picture of 
an ideal life. Everyone will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. And no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles. You know, the people who are far from God. You can't come close to God. You're, you're not perfect. You know, you're not a Jew. In that day, He's going to gather them together. And the Lord will rule over them from Mount Zion from that day and forever. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come to me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name. And they will live securely For then His greatness will reach out to the ends of the earth and He will be our peace. And then He gives this description of God. Listen to who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives our transgressions. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will have compassion upon us. And here's here's what God says He's going to do with our sin. It says, you will have compassion on us and you will tread our sins underfoot and you will hurl them in our iniquities into the depths of the sea and you will be faithful to Jacob and show your love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors long ago. See, God says, a time is going to come And I'm going to deal with your sin and I'm going to send you someone who will be a shepherd who will lead you out, a king who will defend you and you'll be able to live in peace 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And then silence. For 500 years, generation after generation, God is silent. It's like like He's forgotten about the Jews, like He doesn't care for His own people. And then, totally out of the blue, unexpectedly, a star. And a choir of angels. I just think sometimes, I wonder what it was like, you know, in the days before neon lights. You know, if you were in Jerusalem maybe and you looked in the distance and you saw this light on the hillside and you had no idea what it was. You'd never seen anything like that. Or you wake up in the night and you hear this music. It's the most beautiful sound you've ever heard and you have no idea what it is or where it's coming from. It's the choir of angels announcing the coming of the Messiah, the King. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious peoples and the leaders of the Jews didn't give a rip about it. They wouldn't even take the time to walk six miles to check if it was true that the Messiah had been born. Think about which which is worse, really. Herod who acts with with anger and fear and murder in his heart, or these religious people who don't even care enough, who become so immune to the truth of God because they've copied it and they've heard it and they've read it thousands of times, that they don't even care if the Messiah's been born. So I started wondering, do we have that same kind of reaction today among people? Um, 
you know, I, I think we do. I think it, uh, maybe at Christmas time it becomes even most clear. Because the story of, of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, I mean, you hear it in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And, and you, you hear it every time you come to church, you know, and even if you only come at, at Christmas time and you've been coming for 20 years, 20 times you've heard the story of the birth of Jesus and you, it just becomes a, so what? So maybe Jesus was born, maybe he wasn't. What difference does that make to me? Jesus says it makes all the difference. One time he, he's talking about himself, he's describing himself as, as this great shepherd that, that Micah and others had talked about in the Old Testament. And in John 10.10 10, he says this, he says a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Does it matter whether Jesus the Messiah really came or not? Yes! He came to give you an abundant life. Or maybe some people re- respond kind of like Herod. They're, they're really afraid of Christ, afraid of God. They look at their lives and they see they've blown their marriage, they've been lousy parents, they've been dishonest in their work, they've screwed up so much. And the last thing they want is to come into a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, because they have this picture of God as coming to judge and to condemn and to punish. But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? You know, I've come to believe that I think I know what the most important verse for people today is in the Bible. You might think it's John 3.16, which is an incredibly important verse, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten sons that so whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. But I think maybe the verse after that is even more important for us. Because this is what it says, John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. If your view of God and of Jesus Christ is this hammer coming down on you in your life and you you want to avoid Him and keep as far away as possible, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn you. I came so you could live in a right relationship with God. I don't know if you, you know, or other people you know are reacting in some of these same ways that the scribes and the Pharisees did. Maybe it's become a commonplace to you. My wife Sally, as an adult, developed a lot of allergies. And so she started going to an allergy clinic in, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And every time she goes, they give her these drops that she puts under her tongue three times a day, every day. And, the, and she's building up an immunity to these allergic reactions. And it's working. And day after day after day after she takes these, the allergies become less and less important and less, less difficult in her life, you know. But it can be like that for us in terms of our relationship with God and His Word. You know, you hear it a little bit maybe year after year after year after year and it just becomes ineffective, unimportant. Or maybe it causes you to fear God. 
Jesus said, that's not why these events took place. That's not why I, as the eternal Son of God, became a human being. That's not why God orchestrated all of these events so Mary and Joseph would be in Bethlehem at the right time, so I could be born there, so I could fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies and predictions that God had given. I didn't come to judge you. I didn't come to hurt you. God, I came to save you, to give you abundant life. Does it matter to you? Does it scare you? It ought not to. That's not what God wants. It would be an, an amazing thing, you know, if we could be the kind of response that we see in these wise men who followed the star and sought out Jesus and worshipped Him. Those of you who know me well or have heard me teach a lot, you know, I, I'm really into astronomy and the universe and all that kind of big stuff. So I've been excited that we just landed a, a new a spacecraft on Mars, Insight it's called. And I've been reading a lot about it and listening to people being interviewed about it. It, it, it took it seven months to get to Mars at an average speed of 6,200 miles an hour. It traveled 300 million miles and landed perfectly where it was intended to go on Mars. And I heard one of the, the engineers who had worked on that being interviewed, and they, they asked him, how, how is it possible that you could go that distance, 300 million miles? How do you guide a spacecraft like that to land right where you want it to do? And you, you know what his answer was? It, blew my mind. He said the spacecraft was guided by a star. That the guidance system on this spacecraft is fixed on a star that never moves. And they follow that star for 300 million miles till it lands on Mars. For Herod, for the scribes, six miles away the Messiah was born. And today, Jesus is closer than that to you. He offers that same invitation to us. My prayer for you and me and for our friends is that we would hear that invitation anew, know that it's meant for us, for our time and for our lives, and that we would respond. Let's pray. It's an amazing story about your birth, Lord. Herod responded in such fear and paranoia that he sent soldiers and killed every baby boy in the whole city of Bethlehem. And the scribes didn't give a rip, didn't respond at all. And it must hurt you after all you did for us, Jesus, eternal Son of God, becoming a human being, showing us how to live, dying on the cross in our place for us to respond in any way other than in faith and gratitude and love. I pray that during this Advent season, that invitation would just be so real to us that we would respond. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.